Service Transformation, Reinventing Service for Clients and Employees, hosted by Will Lombardi and Fred Jumbukeshwaran. So, hey, everyone, we have a really fun episode today with a special guest, Phil Fnukin. So let me tell you a little bit about Phil and then he'll introduce himself. So he has a background in Silicon Valley, working at Yahoo and Zynga, and then he later brought his talents to healthcare and finance at Express Scripts, American Express, Northwestern Mutual, and he's now leading his own AI company. So Phil, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself in your own words, and if you can give the audience a little something, tell us what's the worst outage you've ever caused? <laughs> hey, well, thanks first off for inviting me to be here today, Fred and Will. This is really cool. I'm excited to be on. I've listened to a few of your episodes and I, like Jerry Pearson, a few couple episodes back also started off as a paper boy. So I feel like there's a theme running through here, but while I might've misdelivered some papers there, that was nowhere near my worst outage. Like you said, I, I grew up in Silicon Valley. I started off as just sort of a, a software developer, but when I came to Yahoo in 2003, I really learned what it was like to run a service of massive scale. And, and there on three, Yahoo was still the big dog on the internet. That was still an independent company. It was one of the few big survivors of the dot-com crash of 2001 and landed there and started off in registration and login. And so I, I ran 2,000 bare metal machines spread out in nine data centers around the world that served all of login. And when login isn't working, Yahoo wasn't working. And so it was obviously a consequential position to be in. And it was a real mindset shift for me, getting to a place where I had to have a service that was up 24-7. I couldn't just go home at night and go to sleep and turn off my pager. I had to be aware at all times to make sure that things were up and running. And so during my time there, there were lots of little hiccups and issues along the way. But the biggest outage that I ever had was a doozy where we had a release. It was going out late on a Thursday night or something like that. And there was an issue with the first version of the release. And so we made a fix and then there was another issue and we made a fix and another issue. And by the time it was like 530 in the morning, uh, we still hadn't gotten to a place where we had a stable system. So I just said, okay, it's time to roll back. So I reverted the changes and then kicked off the script, which would push out the changes to about 2000 machines all around the world. And then hopped in my car and started driving from Sunnyvale back to San Francisco, where I lived. And about halfway, right in the middle, like in San Mateo, about 30 minutes either way from my home or the office, my pager starts going off. And I realized there's a problem with whatever I'd done. I didn't wait to see that the deployment was good. So login for Yahoo was down completely. And I was in no man's land without any opportunity to hop on a Wi-Fi hotspot. I didn't have a laptop at that point. So I got on the phone to one of my coworkers and was screaming, just kill the process, just kill the process. I forget what, what had happened. And I think I sped the rest of the way home and figured out how to get systems back online. It was a doozy. I think it was like a, an hour long outage for most of login at Yahoo around the world. I like to tell that story now because I'm far enough away from it that it didn't seem as horrible as it did in the moment. But also to just emphasize that, you know, everyone makes those kinds of mistakes. And if you never have caused an outage, you're probably not trying hard enough. But if you ever caused the same outage twice the same way, that's when you should really think about job security. You should always learn from these things. Phil, that get that reminds me of my time in technology and that I've caused and learned a lot over the years. And they, mm -hmm. they do teach you, they, you know, the, the lessons can be a little bit hard one, but they stick with you. Yes, they do. <laughs> so your that example really connects with our theme of service because you talk about the, the need for 24-7 service and your responsibilities to maintain that service. It really resonates with me. I'm sure it resonates with the will. It kind of fits the theme of what we're trying to do here. So in, you, in your words, how would you define service? Like in your experience, what does service mean to you? I think 
A service is basically any system that your company or your customers rely upon. I've worked obviously at places like Yahoo where it was login for me or in gaming Zynga, if the game goes down, you've got millions of players around the world who are pining to get in. And that may not be the most consequential thing, but it's still impactful for the business. When I was at American Express, we ran a stored value product that, that essentially allowed underbanked and unbanked customers to have access to a credit card, right? And if the system is down, then that's huge consequences for somebody who doesn't have a lot of income and, and a lot of means to deal with unforeseen circumstances like that. I think services writ large are the things that are the lifeblood of our businesses today and in every capacity. And they can be, like I said, forward-facing or inwardly-facing. Nice. And yeah. I like those examples. And it shows the criticality to the business or to the customer, which I think is really good. One of the things that I'm sure you've encountered are the, are the need for service transformations, the need to go through and, and improve service and operations. In your experience, what have you seen as drivers of a service transformation? Uh, there are a lot of things that can drive uh, service transformation from uh, technology obsolescence to the need for new features to the business has just fundamentally changed to the whims of an executive who wants to just see something different or, and that, that can be a technology executive or a business executive, either way. I think it's all over the place. There's a really good book that I read not too long ago called Kill It With Fire by Marianne Bellotti that speaks about the need to uh, maintain, build on, and nourish the technology that lives inside of your company on an ongoing basis. And And I really like her perspective, which is one that basically says, that you, you shouldn't be trying to modernize just because there's a newer technology out there. Sometimes that's the right thing to do, but the key is to, to stay on top, to monitor, to know what the key metrics are that are driving um, your business and how your technology feeds into those and continuing to, to stay on top of all of those things all the time and improving in small increments is critical as opposed to this sort of mindset that says, all right, the system's done. We're not going to touch it for a decade. And then all of a sudden it's on fire and you've got to figure out how to salvage it. No, you've got to have an or service oriented mindset that says that at all times that you're maintaining the system and ensuring that it is, is moving with the business and is never lying fallow. You know, when I think about that, I love that word nourishment, like you get to nourish the system, nourish the, the architecture. How do you convince operational leaders, service leaders on the business side, the customer, the internal customer side, that that's the right approach versus wholesale transformation that's needed in technology to create the business transformation of service? Yeah, it's that's it's a great question, and it's a really hard one a lot of the time because from the business side of the house, it frequently, you know, it looks like hey, we've completed the thing, we're done, we should move on and, and go look at the next uh, thing that's in our future. And sometimes that's the right thing to do. It depends on where the business is at a given point in time. If, if you're a startup and you're just trying to figure out how to scrabble by building for the future and making sure that you've got something that's going to be solid in a decade, probably not the right orientation to have. I think it's important to, to talk to business leaders about uh, amortizing the costs of their systems over time, as opposed to just thinking about the, the in-year cost of uh, transformation. Because if you come back to a system that has been left aside and forgotten for a decade or 20 years or 30 years, as, as we've seen all of us in our careers, coming back and trying to modernize that thing can be incredibly challenging because the core expertise that was required to build it is now mostly gone. It becomes an archeology span project to understand what the thing does. 
And most likely it's actually critical for the business, right? And so the small cost of maintaining it and keeping it current with architectural standards and testing and deployment and all the things that you do for a well-maintained system is really, really small compared to that huge project to come along. And how many times have we seen the transformation of a huge service become, it's estimated as a year, a year and a half to complete right. years later, it's still not done. And so it, it's, it's really easy to look at that estimate. It's us 24 months to fix that thing, you know, $5 million and like 10 years later and a hundred million dollars later, it's failed. And if you just spent a half mil a year on the thing on an ongoing basis, it would still be a, a vibrant system that was doing what you needed and would have modified to suit the needs of the business as you go. You know, when I hear you talking, it makes sense that this approach, because when a couple episodes, we've talked about business process and that keeping up with your processes at the same time, I can imagine this orchestration of what you just described and also the business keeping up with their processes, that nurturing over time can avoid a lot of the things you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Can, you know, can you give an Maybe bring this home by giving an example. One of the things I've heard about, the reason why it costs so much money to extend the New York City subway is because we keep stopping. Like we'll extend the subway yeah. and then we'll stop. And 10 years later, okay, we right. understand it again. Then we have to hire new civil engineers and remap the thing out and build up all the expertise again and figure out how to do it again. And that yeah. cost is so high. If we just kept constantly always updating the system and extending the system naturally, it would we wouldn't lose expertise and we would save ourselves that huge hard cost. And we'd actually be more efficient at it. Yeah. And there's a theme that I've seen in many companies where new leadership comes in, they just set out on a big earth moving project to, to fundamentally overhaul something. Hey, we need a new business intelligence systems, a data lake, right? And so the architect comes in and starts the new data lake and two years later, they, they move out and a new leader comes in and they're like, oh my goodness, we need to create another data lake. That's the old technology over there. That's no good. So we start a new one. And then the next guy comes in two years, three years later, and then the new one. And so what you have is five data puddles sitting next to each other, and none of them are sort of interoperable. And while you can legitimately make the case that each one of the technologies was probably better than the last one in, in some way, shape, or form, the value to the business of having just one is incredibly, is huge. I wasn't there when this happened there. I, I worked at Express Scripts. Uh, and Express Scripts is a pharmacy benefit manager, and uh, they purchased their biggest rival, a company called Medco, a few years before I arrived. Um, and each of them had their own backend, mainframe-based processing system. Uh, and one of the things that they did that I thought was unique and really brilliant was they chose Medco's system to be the one that they were going to go ahead with. And they basically migrated all of their, their business off of their own system and got it to Medco's. Now, Medco's system was certainly not brilliant by any stretch of the imagination. It had all sorts of issues with it, but it was so much easier once they were at one to figure out how do you move transformation forward from there than if you had two systems that were a hodgepodge together and you had to figure out how to move to where the business needed to go over the long haul. And yeah, it's something that I, I think leaders should think about carefully when they're about to start up the, the next version of, of an existing product. There was a phrase I heard from someone I worked with. It was uh, stop starting and start finishing. There you go, right? <laughs> stop starting, start finishing. Yeah. Um, get something through your system, get it out, get it done, and then... Uh, move on to to the next thing i imagine the realities of decision making in in what you were just describing just even in the data puddles you talked about i can imagine the example you brought you just said in express scripts 
that took a lot for a leader to say, we're going to come off of our stuff that I know and, and trust and move it to the stuff that is fairly unknown. So yes. it, it takes a little bit of faith and trust and risk for a leader to do that. We don't see that very often, right? You don't see that. And, and as a business leader, you hit it right on the head. I, what drives me crazy is when you have all these data puddles and the customer and the service organization are really suffering because we're constantly asking the client information we already have. Mm -hmm. We're constantly pulling information from different sources of technology or data marts, if you would. And, and when we could just have one architecture of data that enables the architecture of the technology as you're going through these journeys, can you give an example of where something like that worked or or maybe where it didn't work and you had to course adjust? I uh, was at Meta briefly, and I'll tell you, if there's a place that has their data infrastructure down right, that place has it nailed. They have consistent ways for managing all of the data that runs all of their systems, for how data flows from one place to another, to privacy controls around all of the data. It, it really is impressive. They spent a ton of time and engineering effort on making sure that the infrastructure works seamlessly and at massive scale. There is an art there that many companies don't spend a lot of time on. They think in terms of, hey, what's the feature I need to get out the door? And not necessarily, what are the things between the developer's desktop and the production system? How do those things work? And a lot of the time, those are the things that actually make you be able to move quickly, to be able to modernize your systems in, in a reasonable manner because you're able to, to build, test, deploy, and do so at a really high pace. And you know, where I've had teams that have gone through a transformation of how products are delivered, and I'll have to say my the, the teams I worked with at American Express did this. And when I showed up, they did two releases a year, two big bang waterfall disaster releases a year that were two weeks of not sleeping before the release and four weeks of, of fixing after the release. And then everyone sort of went home and napped for a month and they started back on their their, their cycle. Um, we were able to get them to a place where they were doing first continuous integration. So we started releasing every two weeks and about three years after we started, we got to actual continual deployment, a place where anytime code was checked in, it would get tested thoroughly by our systems in an automated way. It was all behind feature flags. So we didn't launch features until we wanted to, but we'd push that code into production as soon as it, it cleared all of those tests. And it, it meant that Developers really were able to get code into to production a lot more quickly. It led, led to higher developer and engineering satisfaction scores or people really enjoyed their job a lot more because of that. And you know what? The business loved it too because they needed to get something done. It, it got done. It went quickly. If they needed to get something out, there was no like batting down the hatches. We're going to do a release and everything's going to blow up for the next two weeks. It was just like, all right, yeah, just throw it onto the pipeline, throw it onto the, the conveyor belt and stuff went out the door. It was, uh, it was a really great place to be. I wanted to pivot over to, you mentioned in that last part, the business. Mm -hmm. I've been in situations, I kind of paint this picture and I'd love to hear your response where when we have a service transformation, I go to my technology partners and I say, here's what I'm trying to achieve. And there seems to just be a constant interrogation versus solution oriented approach. And I don't, by the way, I don't think it's a technology fault and I don't think it's a business fault. I think it's both. But I always hear this, what are you trying to solve? What are your requirements? It, it's this very prescriptive culture that seems to emerge. And 
Can you talk a little bit about have you seen that and what is what's a better approach to truly have the business partner with technology to solve more of a shared outcome around service transformation? In many companies that I've been at, I think there is sort of a, a broken codependence between engineering and business side of the house. From the engineering side of the house, they don't feel like they're being partnered with effectively. From the, the business side of the house, there is a mindset that says, oh, the engineers don't know what the heck we're trying to do here. And so we're not going to treat them as a partner. I've also lived in a world where engineering and the business work hand in hand. And there really is a good conversation that sort of says, what, what's the outcome that we're trying to drive here? What are the metrics that we're trying to move? And then partnering together to figure out what are the right ways to go build applications and build solutions that address those objectives. A lot of the time in the first world where that neither side is communicating effectively, there is this common theme of people asking, what are the features you want? What are your requirements? Without really understanding what the business is trying to do and not even trying to care about what the business is doing. And then of course the business is saying, hey, I need the confabulator that does A, B, and C without really understanding if that has anything to do with the outcome that they're trying to drive. They, they assume it does, but they don't know the technology. They don't know what could be delivered. They don't know timeframes and all of those sorts of things. And so they're sort of talking across a chasm to each other and nowhere in the that process is how do we partner together to get the right business outcome? Because in the end, that's the most important thing, obviously, right? A lot of the time, engineers want to build beautiful things that run great for the for a long time and meet some abstract view of what's right. That's that, that's never the right outcome. That's never the right approach. We go to work every day to, to drive outcomes for our business, to maximize profitability, improve customer satisfaction, do all the things that services really need to do. And, and so I think it's critical that business leaders take a risk and go to technologists and sit down and really have a conversation with them to say, hey, this is what we're trying to do here. Let's go hand in hand and, and figure out how to get it done. And from the technology side of the house, the, the scary thing can be to step up and take ownership of some of the outcomes, right? Is when you're told, hey, we need to move conversion on this flow to be above 50%. The, the engineers can't just sit back and say, okay, tell me what, do you want the text to be on the form or tell me what you want to do and, and then uh, assume that it'll work out. They, they have to actually put some skin in the game and engage and try to help figure out what's the best way to solve a problem. Because a lot of the times when I've seen this work well, what you find out is the engineers have a totally different approach to solving the problem than the business would because the engineers know what's possible, know what they could do to, to deliver great outcomes. And, and the business would have never asked for anything like that. Uh, but when they come together, you can actually get to, to really good creative solutions to problems that, that really move the business forward. I love the culture that you painted, right? And we're basically playing it back to you. And I've heard you say this, and I've even heard Fred say this, is the best business leaders are technologists. The best technologists are business leaders. And it doesn't mean where you come from in your experience. It just means continue to be curious as a business leader, continue to be curious as a technologist. And this two shall meet. And, and the great partnerships is when you are an advocate of your partner versus just your domain expertise. And, and what you just articulated is that environment that works well when you create that advocacy, that curiosity we've heard in a couple episodes and sometimes you don't know the impacts of each other's domains unless you sit there and talk about it, like you just said, and create that shared outcome. One thing that I've seen has been sometimes the technology teams will get frustrated because they're like, oh, the business wants stuff really, really fast. And they don't fully understand or appreciate how much is involved. 
On the other side, the business is like, okay, well, why is it taking so long? Or why am I getting asked for all these requirements? And, and your answer, Phil, is how I coach people is like, you got to come closer together, like, like partnering with the business, bring awareness to our business partners in terms of what you're doing, help them understand the complexity you're dealing with. Because what starts out as a simple thing, I just want to do X in a high level vision can turn into enormous complexity and the implementation side, closing that chasm and bringing that awareness to the business, I think helps them to guide technology and the compromise that you can make and helps technology to be able to expand understand the business context and provide recommendations and then builds empathy on both sides in terms of what's involved in, in, yes. in doing these kinds of big implementations or big complex or even new innovative solutions. Yep. So it really makes uh, sense to me. Yeah. There's a pattern I've seen over and over again in my career. And that is that a business leader comes and says, Hey, here's a big project. When can you get it done? And the engineering team goes off and looks at it and they design the perfect approach. And their answer is two years. The business leader is two years. What? No way, that's way too long. I need it in six months. And so the engineering team goes off and they talk to themselves and they're like, okay, if I cut this corner and if I don't do this over there and, and whatever, then I can get it down to a year, right? And so they come back to the business leader and they say, okay, we'll do it for you in a year without any other explanation. And uh, the business leader is still frustrated because it's six months longer than they wanted and they can't understand why it's complicated. And at the same time, they've just trained that leader that, all you have to do is push hard and you can get your team to move faster. When in reality, there was some real trade-offs that were made there that weren't transparent to the leader. Again, at Express Scripts, we had an example of this where we were trying to sell our automated pharmacy services to be white labeled for another provider. And they came back to us and said, okay, here's this thing and we need it in like six months. And we went off and looked at it and basically said, with our systems, there's just no way we could do this in six months. It, it is going to take a year. And then unacceptable was the answer. And so what we ended up doing was coming back to the, the business and said, okay, we can do this for you in six months, but it's going to mean that there are these six manual processes that you're going to have to staff from your operations staff in order to be able to make it work while we get the initial stuff out the door. There's another option, which uh, has three or four manual steps involved that'll get you out the door in nine months, or we can automate it all in 12 months. And oh, by the way, if you do the six month option, that it, it, it's not 12 months to get to everything automated. It's now more like 15 because we've got to do a bunch of other stuff in the middle. And so we had this conversation with uh, the business leaders who were grumpy about it because this should have been easy. Why is it taking more than six months was sort of their mindset. In the end, they chose door number two, the sort of middle option that where they could backfill some of the feature gaps with just human effort from their teams. And so it raised the cost, but it allowed them to get out the door a little bit faster, but in a way that was more sustainable for them. And I think those are the kinds of, of hard conversations that it's important to have with business leaders so they can understand the trade-off that they were, that they're making. I've lived those examples, Phil, and without that nurturing uh, of the architecture, the data and the business process that you talked about earlier, I've seen a really negative impact on the business side and day two, day three, whatever the phase three, phase four, whatever those terms are in your company, where that brute force of just throw people at it and create manual processes don't get addressed. And I think that's the other side of the coin too, is be really clear what your value engineering out of that day one, if you would, for lack of a better term, to get to the business goals of a certain time under a certain budget appropriately with good outcomes, but make sure you are addressing that day two, three and four 
with probably the approach you talked about earlier, like that constant management of your systems and your process. Is it, did I get that right? Yeah, you did. So Phil, thinking about some of our listeners, could you give a, an example in your experience of what a good partnership looks like? Yeah, be glad to. Going back to Express Scripts a lot. In my time there, we had a major overhaul of our specialty pharmacies, customer service operations that needed to occur. So if you're not familiar, specialty pharmacy is a, a branch of the pharmacy business that sells high cost, low utilization drugs, things like chemotherapy and rheumatoid arthritis and hemophilia drugs and those sorts of things. And so the call center that Credo had and still probably has in some part today was really antiquated. It was a hodgepodge of five or six different systems that had been built to handle particular use cases at times when they, they came up. Uh, they were hard to modify. There were even some places where they had uh, green screen mainframe interfaces that you had to know to type in 42 FK stroke and no spaces or else it wouldn't work. It was a nightmare to, to run and operate. And it took on the order of six to eight months to train your first uh, a patient care advocate, our PCAs, to, to handle their first call. So operationally, it was really difficult. The, the challenges with these systems were a contributor to high turnover. Everyone sort of knew that we needed to go transform all of this and to, to unify all of these systems into one common system that had a clean, well-designed interface and that would allow our, our PCAs to deliver high quality of service and do so with less training and hopefully help our customers and our members and our patients get better outcomes. So at the beginning of this process, I sat down with the operational leader for all of our call centers, and she came in with a very real concern for us, which was, hey, it takes us six to eight months to train our agents right now. We don't want to actually add time to that. So what we need to do is we need to wholesale, replace all of our old systems. We need to build the new thing and deploy it in one big bang so that we don't really need to, to have people swiveling between yet another application and add more training time to the process. At that point, I tried to convince her that that was, in my experience, a guaranteed way to fail in, in overhauling and, and transforming a service, but she was unconvinced and she had good reason for it. She'd seen this kind of thing fail in the past uh, in incremental approach. And so she pushed back. We let it lie there for a while. And then the teams went off and started building the services that they needed to stand up the new system. This is where I'd like to highlight another huge character in this story. The leader of my user experience and design team, she had a ton of great expertise that she brought in and was able to create user experiences, which were really smooth and intuitive and helped every step in the process. We went through the implementation of the first feature and we chose the first feature based on the type of call that had the most traction or that had the most call and wasted the most time for our PCAs. And that was change of address. So something really simple and straightforward. And that also had to include authentication into the system and a few other things along the way. Once we had our first feature functionally complete and running against our production data store, uh, we decided to go to one of our call centers and sit down with some of our more senior agents. Uh, and we did this with the, the operational leader at our side. And we put that in front of them and said, hey, we want you to test this new system for us. Tell us what you think. So they went through it and they did a couple of dry runs and they said, seems pretty straightforward. 
tell you what, why don't I just hop on a call and see if I can actually serve as a client on, right now with this? And they did. And we have recordings of the first couple of calls. And they were amazed customers who immediately noticed that we'd taken a process which used to take five minutes to get authenticated. And here's my address. And what's your old address? And it took like 30 seconds. And they were got to the end of it. And our members, our customers were saying, wow, that's amazing. And the agents too had a similar response that they were just uh, enthralled with this. Then the operational leader asked if she could take some calls and actually run through the flow in the system without any training. I mean, she knows the business, but hadn't worked with these tools in particular, sat down, was able to handle a couple of calls. It was a piece of cake. And all of a sudden her mindset and the whole operational team's mindset changed from, hey, we need to do the big bang to we could do this feature by feature. And the PCAs kind of reached over and hugged their monitor and said, okay, we want to use this wherever we can, build this out as much as possible, and we'll get rid of the old stuff as we go. And so it was an amazing mindset shift for everybody involved, I think, because it got us to a place where the operational leaders thought very differently about what transformation looked like. And the engineering team too, who'd always been used to just sort of being order takers and had this sort of ho-hum, we'll be done with this project in five years and then it'll launch. All of a sudden they too, they stepped in and the conversation changed from how quickly can we get to the finish line to, okay, what's the next feature that we go after? And, and then it became a process of trying to decide how do we instrument our code? How do we instrument the existing systems to know where agents are, are spending most of their time? What's the highest value area that we can go go renovate and, and update to work for what the business needs? And like I said earlier on, that process is no doubt still underway because there's just a ton of ground to cover there. But every single time that we launched a new feature, we saw the core business metrics, the things that the business cared about, like average handle time and time the customers were spending waiting before they, they got to an agent, those things moved all in the right direction. And that made everybody happier from the customers slash members to the PCAs who were handling the calls to obviously the operational leadership who was trying to deliver great quality service. There's some additional benefits there as I, I was listening to that. One is the unbelievable change management environment you created just by creating that transparency and everyone understanding the impacts that they're making versus the resistance that you usually get on the front line when you're creating change, especially to their tools that don't seem to work better, yet they got to be trained on it. You, you eliminated that. And we all have taken the Q12s before in the Gallup polls. And my experience, one that always shows up is I don't have the right tool to do my job successfully. You've compressed that a little bit and allowed that employee engagement to really start ticking up too. And to your point, it's going to be a journey. It's not a, you get this done six months, 12 months, 18 months. It's a constant journey, but creating that environment that you just described, it's going to make the change management so much easier with everybody involved. Yeah. And, and one of the things I throw in there is that when we did that first demo of those first few flows, the PCAs themselves pointed out to us places where we got it wrong with our design. Hey, these things should all be on the prior step or add one more field here that captures this. And we did that and we actually improved. We had great outcomes with our first try and then we incorporated their feedback and got even better outcomes along the way. And that was both in reducing the, the core metrics for the business. And like you said, well, there was engagement from these folks who always felt like they were at the bottom of the heap and no one ever listened to them. And all of a sudden they were engaged and, and part of the process the, to make their tools and their lives better. And so it was a virtuous cycle. That's a great example. Thanks for that.
So that story you told also really connects with what Richard Dalton shared with us in terms of involving multiple folks in the design, taking a design-centric approach, and how that really creates a lot of value. And it's nice to see that approach applied in different areas and seeing it work successfully. So that's a super cool story. Well, thanks. So shifting gears a little bit, you've been doing some really great work with artificial intelligence, AI, and machine learning, ML. And I'd love to get your perspective on what you see the potential for AI, for ML, in the evolution of service and operations, both in the short term and the long term. In my time working in AI at Meta, I really learned a lot about what the state of the art at scale really looks like. And I think the, the big change for me, the big mindset uh, shift and understanding that I came to while I was there was that there are an amazing amount of models that are out there in the public for free use for consumption, however you want to go off and to apply to a ton of existing problems from computer vision to voice to text to obviously things like the large language models, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, and I think my mindset prior to my experience at Meta was one of, hey, we have to build all of our own models internally. We have to create all of our expertise in shop. And in reality, I think there are a lot of places, a lot of ways that you can go out and take existing pre-trained models and start applying them really quickly to problems right out of the gate. What are some models that come to mind? Like, what are some of the models out there that you've seen that you're like, wow, these, I can't believe this is out here. I can't believe these are things that are available for anyone to just use. Yeah. Some good examples of that are a lot of the YOLO models, the you only look once models that do computer vision, that if you want to, to take a picture or take a video and identify the items that are in it, or if you're looking for a particular thing, or you're trying to prevent shoplifting in your store and you want cameras to be able to identify when packages leave the shelves and, and then identify whether or not they're being paid for. Those things are, are, are largely out there and really don't require the massive skill and expertise that it took to build the things in the first place. And I think lots of businesses go out and try to, to do that from scratch. So I'd be remiss at this point if I didn't talk about what I'm doing right now at Pad Inc. We are a symbolic AI startup whose premise is that language is the new interface. There has been an evolution, obviously, in how we interact with computers as time has gone on. Way back in the day, it was always text-based. Then they came along with the mouse and the graphical user interface. But more and more today, we're controlling devices with language from Siri on your watch to Alexa or any number of other devices out there that we're talking to with our voice or that we're writing to as with ChatGPT. Our company focuses on the financial industry. And in those cases, you really want a natural language interface, but the, the generative models like the ChatGPTs are not only the wrong thing for your business, but they, they're something that you don't want. And why is that? It's because if I go to my financial firm and say, hey, I want investing advice about whatever it happens to be, you don't want ChatGPT going off and, and generating some response for you. What you want is your company's core expertise to be the thing that's reflected to users. And so it's critical in these cases, whether it be a voice interface over the phone or a chat bot, to have well-designed conversations that uh, allow you to deliver the value to your customers that only you as a financial firm can deliver. And so what we do in a symbolic natural language understanding company is we have an algorithmic platform which understands user language in a truly deep way and can capture user intent 
and allow people to interact in a more natural form to provide data and PII that can be parsed and managed in a way that not even the generative, the, the chat GPTs of the world, the large language models can do. And so our hope is to be able to step into these places where there's high regulatory requirements and be able to deliver something that is very explainable, that from a resource utilization perspective is orders of magnitude less expensive than the, the large language models and do so in, in a way that delivers huge value. We like to say that our platform is going to be able to run on someone's Apple Watch as opposed to what it takes to run the ChatGPTs or Meta's generative models. I've been to those data centers. They are unbelievable. They're engineering feats, uh, but it's kind of the wrong tool for the job in many use cases. Phil, is wearables and lifestyle go into that model with you? Pulling data from, to your point, like iPhone watches and stuff to understand that data and how you use it as a financial company for advice to the customer? Is that a way to think about it? Or is that too, that's too much into the privacy right now? Yeah, I mean, I, from, from what we're doing, we're focused just on the language understanding piece of the puzzle. Right. And we, we've got, it's amazing, a fairly capable system where you can talk to it. And what we do much better than, I think, the large language models is we retain context to be able to come to good conclusions. Two things you said that resonated with me. The first example of having the company's own financial advice being pushed out versus yes. having ChatGPT go out there and just grab a bunch of financial principles and create it. That's dangerous to your point. And it's not the advice branding for the company that they specifically want. I think that's a really good one. And then this retained context, I think is a really good one. Putting those two together in an example, yeah. if you could. I'm yeah, yeah. Well, so, I mean, I think the, the context piece of the puzzle is something that we do as humans really easily. We're talking about the weather, right? And hey, it's probably dumping snow where you are right now, Fred. It is. It? Yeah. Not so much here in Wisconsin. And we come back a few minutes later and I say, hey, are you going to have to dig out your driveway? And the ability to sort of connect those dots is something that the large language models can't always do. And where that matters for service transformation is how many times, I hate to do this to you, but I, uh, uh, Will, I, I, I use this as an example. I called my bank who you used to work for and it was like, please describe what you'd like to do. And I said, hey, I'd like to learn about college savings. And the response came back, oh, you've got a communication from the bank. Is that right? No, 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 that's not right. And, and like, their uh, voice to text is always going to be somewhat challenging, but if you've got a natural language understanding engine behind you and the voice to text translator gets it wrong and thinks I said something different, our engine is going to be able to say, oh, okay, I understand that it's not this thing that I, you just, that we heard you say. Now, let me re-ask the question and maybe actually probe around and, and try to ask the question in a few different ways to try to get you to where you need to go so that we can capture user intent accurately, either in an IVR or via chatbot, and actually route you to the right place and have a natural language interaction there as opposed to sort of historically, there's the the stochastic models that just sort of try to predict what they think the best outcome is, but aren't really having a conversation. They're just sort of guessing probabilistically at what you're hoping for. And if you're just calling to get your account balance, odds are pretty good they're going to get you to the right place. But customer frustration is driven in large part in these systems by the fact that people can't have a natural language interaction and they get routed to the wrong place. And it's just hard for them to do what they need to do. It's funny. I see two value streams. One that front end you talked about and the natural language of the past has created these really bad behaviors for clients and customers where 
how many people, when you notice it's a natural language bot or something that you're interfacing with, you start hitting zero until you get transferred. It's a habit that these unfortunate models of the past have created and are still in the system. And so that frustration, that irritation, and that what I call that client effort that is needed is not good right now in service. And we need to change that. And it sounds like you are on a path to help change that front end experience and get rid of those bad habits that clients do because it's creating more effort for the client and more cost for the company. And then there's something in that retained context that I think you're onto something which is really big around service is how many times do clients or customers have to tell their story two, three, four, five X, right? Depending on where they get transferred or who they're contacting this time versus how do you follow the life of the customer when they're having life events or how are they giving signals out to give it context if it's a life event that they already let you know last time they contacted you, right? right. Those are two key things in service transformation that can really help. Yeah, they're really critical. And I think one of the other the benefits of the natural language interface, one of our demos is around setting up a 529 college savings account. And, and the first step that you need to, in that process is like, okay, which state are you in? So we can find the right program per state. And you can see, I went through this process in my state a while back. And first, I obviously find the right program. And then it's a form of first name, last name, address. And by the way, they ask you what state you live in during that process, right? As opposed to knowing that, hey, I said I lived the beginning right. in Wisconsin. I should be able to retain that. And so what a natural language interface also allows you to do is to create much more seamless interactions where we start off with, we know in this application, here are the 15 data points that we need to collect. So instead of saying, okay, what's your first name? What's your last name? We can say, please give us your contact info. And the user may give you their first name and their street address, not their zip code, and maybe not their phone number, maybe not their email. And we collect as much data as we can. And then we come back and we ask them for the pieces of data that we didn't collect along the way. And so I think just makes a, a far more intuitive flow that will allow users to, to process things far more quickly and, and hopefully drive user satisfaction up. More proactive service is what you're describing, Phil. And that is called anticipate, detect, and respond. When you can get these systems, these models to anticipate, detect, and respond, going back to your 529, it should, once you get through authentication, you should say, are you calling about a 529 in Wisconsin where right. you live? And get rid of those bad habits we've taught customers. Okay, I know we're coming close to the end here. And there's a lot of takeaways, a lot of good highlights of our discussion today, Phil, with your experiences and your examples. A couple that you know, just stand out for me, true partnership, nurturing your environment, and really the solutions that are out there, you don't have to go about it alone. But if I go back to that true partnership, I love the example of how you created the transparency across the technology teams and the business and operations teams, and how that really helps your change management and that journey that you're both on. But it also allows those employees to feel like they're really truly making an impact and stay curious to continue to iterate that nurturing hits home for me because if you can get into that environment where your tech, your data, and your business process are constantly managing through nurturing every year, every quarter, it really helps these transformations going forward. And that last one, the artificial intelligence, the machine learning, the automation, there's a lot of solutions out there really understanding what's a good fit for your values, your principles, your brand as a company, your core. 
and and don't go about it alone. Look at partnerships and solutions for that AI and that machine learning. Did I hit on on some good ones? Are there are there ones that you would add or piggyback on? Yeah, no, that was a great summary. Thanks, Will. I think the one thing I'd throw in um, on top of all of this is the importance of culture. And there there are themes of this throughout the conversation, like you you've highlighted. But I think I've seen teams be wildly successful but never in in a place where there wasn't sort of that good partnership where engineering was the low man on the totem pole and the business sort of looked down on them. It's always been in places where engineering is encouraged to have a seat at the table, where they are encouraged to to work on their own internal improvement and craftsmanship and where you build, again, I said it earlier, this flywheel where everyone feels like they're engaged and they're contributing to the outcomes of the business is trying to drive. And, and if you can get to that place, it's not easy to get there a lot of the time. It's hard. It takes leadership uh, and it takes grassroots effort to, to make it all work. But if you can get there, you can fundamentally change outcomes for the business, which is what we're all here for in the end. So thanks, Will, for summarizing. And Phil, that was a really great add on culture and the importance of culture. Before we let you go, is there a piece of advice you'd like to leave our listeners? And before you answer that, the quote I mentioned earlier, stop starting and start finishing, was actually from you, Phil. So it's a piece of advice that, that I've taken heart. But is there another message that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, thanks, Fred. And yeah, I'm a big believer in stop starting, start finishing. In other words, don't don't have too many things on your plate at once. Maybe the the strange corollary to that is that don't mark the launch of your product as your ultimate finish line. I've seen time and again this pattern where teams launch something, they declare success, they move on to the next thing, and they don't actually go back to iterate to get uh, improvements on what they have originally launched. As I mentioned earlier, we had the uh, patient care advocates who provided feedback for us on the feature that we'd launched into the call center. They looked at it, they found ways that they could improve it, and we went back and made those improvements. And with a small fraction of incremental improvement, we were able to improve the outcomes that the business was getting. And I think this is something that I learned from Zynga, which is that launch something, look at it, test it, figure out if there are ways to optimize. And a lot of the times you can improve the business outcome 50, 100, 200% by allocating five to 10% extra time at the end of the project to just go through and iterate and fix the, the little things that didn't work as you, you planned or expected. And I think if more business leaders looked at, at the world that way, we'd see way better outcomes on almost every single project that you do. I love it, Phil. And it connects really nicely with what you talked about with nurturing. Great way to end and, and, and close us out. Now, for those listeners that want to learn more about your work or learn about you, uh, where can they find more information? Where can they engage with you online? Yeah, you can come uh, visit us at our website, pat.ai, or email me directly at phil at pat.ai. I'd be glad to, to tell you more about what we're doing. Awesome. So, with that, I want to thank all of our listeners. I want to thank you, Phil, for coming. It was a great conversation. You'll find links to Phil's website, his email address, along with his LinkedIn, Will's, and my own in the description. If anyone has any feedback on the episode, they want to be a guest on the podcast uh, or have suggestions for content or topics, uh, please feel free to reach out and connect with us. Thank you all. Thanks again, Phil. All right. Thank you.